Right, well, good morning, everyone. A very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. I'm Deputy Director here. And I'm really delighted to, invite, uh, to welcome you here uh, for this event today, which I've certainly been looking forward to. Um, today, we're going to talk about whether the innovations and precedents that have been set in Parliament during the course of the Brexit process are, are going to be uh, a sign of things to come. Are they going to be permanent? And also, with a sort of deliberate ambiguity in our title today, whether they're a good thing, um, who they might be a good thing for. And we've got an excellent panel here to, to discuss these questions. So Brexit has really turned parliamentary procedure from something of a niche area of expertise into something which is frequently discussed on the Today programme um, and even on BBC Newsround, the TV programme, which one of my colleagues appeared on to explain some, something the other day. Um, and it's highlighted that the way that Parliament chooses to run itself and the decisions that people make, the Speaker, the Government, the Opposition, backbenchers, can have real um, outcomes for the, for, for the way that things turn out for the country. And of course, you know, this isn't just about Brexit, it's also about minority government. If Theresa May had returned from the election in 2017 with a sizeable majority, we wouldn't have been seeing all these interesting things playing out in, in, in Parliament. But even then, I think, Bre Brexit is such a difficult issue that cuts across parliamentary lines that it's not a, it's not a done deal that, that Theresa May would have had a majority for whatever deal she'd come up with had she had a majority in 2017. So Brexit and minority government, I think, have, have led to a situation where parliamentarians on all sides have been looking for different ways to achieve what they want to achieve in Parliament. And some innovations have been made on the government side, but also um, by opposition and backbenchers. And some people have said, you know, that some of these things might be driving us towards a constitutional crisis. Others have said that they think this is essentially Parliament operating as normal and deciding how it wants to organise itself. So I'm delighted to say, as I say, we have a fantastic panel with a range of views here to discuss this today. We've got Dr. Jack simpson Caird, who is now at the Bingham Centre. And he would, but he uh, has worked for a long time in the House of Commons in the Parliament and Constitution Centre in the House of Commons and is a veteran of the EU withdrawal bill process. Um, uh, Nikki da Costa, also a veteran, I think, of that process, former uh, Director of Legislative Affairs at Number 10 and uh, now Senior Counsel at Cicero. Uh, Professor uh, Meg Russell, who is Director of the Constitution Unit at UCL. And Mark Harper, former Chief Whip, um, Member of Parliament for the Forest Dean. <coughs> So the way we're going to run this, we're going to start with some very brief opening remarks from the panel. Um, then I'll dive into some questions myself, which I've been itching to ask, um, and then we'll open up to the floor. We'll be ending uh, on 10 at the dot because some of our panellists have to get away. Um, there are no fire uh, things planned, so if there's a fire alarm, it's a real one. So can I start with uh, Jack? Um, this question, has, has Brexit uh, changed Parliament for good? Thanks, uh, Hannah. It's, um, it's great to be here. Um, so two points uh, to start with. Um, I don't think Parliament has changed that much, and I think that's one of the reasons we're in such a difficult situation. Um, Brexit is, I think, a two-level problem or a two-level constitutional crisis, depending on how rhetorical you want to be. Um, there's obviously the main problem about what our future relationship with the EU is going to be. But then I think there's another problem, which is been rather less time on, which is how we decide what that relationship should be. And I think our constitutional arrangements have many strengths, notably their flexibility, but most of all the people that work in our institutions. But I still think that in order to overcome 
the difficulties of minority government scrutinising a treaty of epic proportions for the first time um, and legislating for multiple outcomes of a negotiation process. That was such a difficult task that without bespoke procedures, it was always going to be very difficult. And I think people within government and parliament have made a huge effort to try and adapt our procedures, but it's just come too late for those procedures um, to be effective. And then the second point is I do think that we should be careful in terms of how we characterise the attempts to adapt those procedures, because I don't think that they amount to trying to frustrate Brexit. I think that, and I don't think they should be regarded as unconstitutional in any way, because if there's one thing we know about our constitutional system, it's that the Commons has the right to decide its own procedures. That's it. Very good. Nikki. Okay. So I think you, know, you started by saying that you know, has, has Brexit changed Parliament? And I think it's a combination of, of uh, three things, really. It's Brexit, it's the general election result, as you said. It's the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which acts as a protection for MPs for the consequences of actions which, would, in, in another world, would have a different impact. And I think the main change, I'd say there have been some good innovations, and I think they're changes for good. It's not really about breaking a procedure, but let's just acknowledge it here. Secondary legislation and the treatment of that, I think that's improved remarkably, both within government and outside in Parliament. But where I think there has been a significant change, and it's not for good, is in the breakdown of trust. I, I've, you know, I, I often say I was raised in the Whip's office ten years ago. My, you know, my first political post uh, was in the Whip's office, and now uh, in number ten. So I come at it from a particular viewpoint. But it's one of that, and despite the positioning of the benches and despite that oppositional politics that you see in the chamber, a lot is done on trust through the usual channels and through negotiation, um, business motions, for for example. And, and Mark is, is much more knowledgeable in this in this respect than, uh, than me. But basically, the principle being, has been that our word is our bond. Um, and the knowledge that Her Majesty's government and Her Majesty's opposition will find that their positions are often reversed has acted as, a, as a, a cushion against some of these kind of more extraordinary manoeuvres. And what you have now, though, is what we face is, is sort of a tragedy of the commons, if I can <laughs> openly use the phrase, where the jointly owned good of finding a way to work together with a view to what, is, what needs to be maintained for the future um, has been undermined. So we've started with sort of the rule compliant but frustrating. So a minority government uh, lacking the numbers, unwilling to give open battle, uh, worrying about a narrative of instability, uh, stops voting on opposition days, uh, pulls business to postpone a clash. This leads to an escalation in tactics. Uh, so you see the use of humble addresses backed up by more recently contempt motions. I have no problem with these things. These are absolutely within the bounds of procedure and rules and uh, they may be frustrating on both sides but I don't have a problem with them. It's the more recent developments, which I think are, they're not really about party lines, they're about different kinds of factions, where driven by, and I, I, it sounds maybe pejorative, but I think driven by a sense of self-righteousness, but also perhaps a lack of investment in what the Commons needs to do in the future, or a lack of care for what needs to be maintained, you have deliberate attempts to break the rules. So um, amendments that are not usually in scope, business motions being amended to cover more than current business, um, seeking to change the standing orders to change the balance of power. And the reason why I think this is problematic is, is threefold. First, it creates greater instability for minority government. Now, you can argue about that. Maybe the argument is, actually, when you have minority government, the best thing is for the government to fall and we go back to a general election. Having been in the executive, I have a slightly different view of that. I think that probably the electorate doesn't want to be asked so, so often. The second aspect is this, and it comes down to where I probably disagree with Jack about it being unconstitutional. The people elect 
the MPs, and from the uh, MPs comes the executive. And when the MPs give their confidence to a government, they say, we want you to execute your programme. And so when you then try and take away those powers, so for example, with the changing of standing orders, and you say, actually, we want the government you to stay there, but we will take those legislative powers, we will compel you and put duties on you. What you're doing there is basically say, creating a new um, focus which the electorate cannot hold to account that particular grouping. You can't vote out that grouping. They're not in government. You can't punish them. There is no levers anymore for the electorate when you have that breakdown there. So the long-term consequence, I think, is reforms um, to manage the damage will be implemented when you have the return of majority government. And I think that these changes where they've been wrought in anger will see a, a backlash. So some good changes, but I really worry about this breakdown in trust and this new way of behaving, which doesn't necessarily invest in the long-term procedures of commons. Very interesting. And one of the questions I think I'll carry on, as I said, into, um, to allow the others to make some opening remarks. I think one of the big questions here is, are we definitely going to have a return to majority government at some it's point? True. <laughs> Meg. Um, okay, so I wrote a post on the Constitution Unit blog a week or so ago, and what I want to do is just go back to two points that I made in that blog in the opening remarks. Um, the first is that um, it's a unique constellation of three different factors which have brought us to this point, to this awkward situation in Parliament. One is the fact of having held a referendum, which places political constraints on MPs which are quite unusual in themselves. The second is the nature of the issue. The EU issue has divided the two main parties going back decades, and what we've got now is two big uh, parliamentary parties um, which are not voting as predictable blocks. They are very, very internally divided. And then the third, of course, is minority government. So in terms of has it changed Parliament for good, that constellation of factors is a unique one, and it's not going to endure and at least in theory, when those factors are removed, Parliament could kind of snap back to the status quo ante. But in fact, I think um, there are cultural changes going on, and cultural changes are not easy, so easily reversed. And some of the kinds of cultural changes that we're seeing, some of which I think are healthy, um, more cross-party working um, between senior figures, including in the two main parties, the coming to prominence of select committee chairs with sort of leadership roles um, in guiding parliament. These can be seen as a natural development from changes that have been going on for many years. Um, so the answer, I suppose, to the question at the outset is yes and no. Um, my second point, which I make quite strongly in the blog, is that I would refute absolutely the idea that it is some kind of a core principle of the British Constitution that the government must control the agenda in the House of Commons. Now, Nikki didn't say that. You said something much softer. But some people like Liam Fox and David Davis do seem to be... I mean, Liam Fox on the Today programme a week or so ago said that pretty much in terms. The core principle of the British Constitution, if we have one, is the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, that there is no higher authority than Parliament. And within that, the House of Commons controls its own procedures by majority vote. Um, that means that at times of majority government, the government is usually able to have quite a lot of control because it has a reliable block that it can depend on. But we're not in that world now. We're now in a minority government situation where even that minority is splintered. Um, so 
Parliament, the House of Commons absolutely has the right to make changes to its standing orders, either temporarily or even permanently, on the basis of what majority can be formed. You could say that Standing Order 14 um, lends the government control, and it is lent by a majority in the House of Commons, and a majority in the House of Commons can, if it wishes to, take that back at any time. Now, if we were to move to a situation of minority government on a longer-term basis, I think that's something we would need to look at because it's not really sustainable as it is. We'd, be, we'd need to be looking at something like a business committee to agree the agenda for the House of Commons, the like of which exists in many other parliaments, including the Scottish Parliament. So I suppose that could be a lasting uh, legacy should this situation continue. And as you also point out in your blog, that is something that previous governments have thought might be a good idea following the proposal from the, from the right well, committee. Well, strangely enough, the right committee, which I worked for, yes, made that proposal, and it was agreed in principle by the House of Commons, but then it was never put into effect. Mark, how do you I am, to these I, Despite being the one politician on the panel, resisted <laughs> the temptation to have lots of opening remarks. So let, let me just pick up a couple of the points. My starting proposition, the answer to your question is I, I don't actually think it's Brexit that's changed Parliament. I think I broadly agree with the panel, which is it's the numbers. Uh, Brexit's made the numbers worse because we nominally have a working majority with our DUP allies, but there's a, a small number of, of MPs on both sides of the House who move primarily on Brexit rather than on their party. But actually, it's a relatively small number. But obviously, in a tightly balanced Parliament, it makes a difference. It's about 20... Conservative colleagues on, on my side of the House have moved, and you know, we saw in the votes last week there was a 20 to 30 number on the other side. Now, obviously, when you're very finely balanced, that makes a difference. I would just remind everybody, people have forgotten this, you know, when I took over as government chief whip, I was very lucky. I was the first Conservative chief whip to have a majority uh, for 23 years uh, in terms of a new election. And my, my judgment was, I said to my party when we were going through the leadership election after David Cameron had announced he was standing down, that 16 whilst not a large majority, was a perfectly adequate working majority for a five-year parliament to deliver a Conservative programme. Uh, and I stand by that. And on Brexit, the working majority was about 45, because it was 16 plus the DUP and the UUP, as they um, were, and about five or six Labour MPs who were very Brexity, for want of a better description. So actually, the, when Theresa May became Prime Minister, she had a a working majority on many issues of about 26 with the unionists from Northern Ireland and a Brexit majority of about 45 which seems to me would have avoided a lot of these problems because it would have enabled you to have some people on both sides of the argument on Brexit who were not content with the central direction of government policy and they wouldn't have been able to alter the balance in the House. So for me the thing that really changed this process was the decision to call the early general election uh, and then uh, make a hash of the campaign and come back without a working majority. I mean, if we're being brutally honest about it. That's actually the fundamental root of all of this, uh, all of these procedural innovations. I, I broadly, the final point is I broadly agree with what everyone else has said, which is um, it's the numbers that have therefore led to the Parliament pushing... Um, the government's control of the agenda. But that's not unusual. If you go back to previous parliaments, when you had majority governments, the governments couldn't assume they got things through. And we had, we've had an unusual period, if, if you look at history, through the Thatcher governments and through the Blair governments. And even when I was a minister in the coalition government, once, as long as you got both the coalition parties on side, that had a, 
uh, a majority of about 80, and on many issues it was closer to 100, which basically meant that once you'd agreed stuff, you were pretty certain of getting it through. And certainly the operation of the civil service is, and I don't think they've quite got their heads around this yet, is that you draft stuff and you sort of throw it over the wall to Parliament and it just sort of happens. And there hasn't been a massive understanding that what you throw over the wall matters. And the final point, I think, which is a good thing, which, I, again, I don't think we've properly understood, is that if you can't assume, as we have been able to, that most votes go on party lines, for me, the very welcome change is it means that you do have to make arguments. You actually have to have a case. It means ministers have to stand at the dispatch box and they genuinely have to persuade people. And I do actually think you can do that. I think you can... You know, you're not going to persuade everybody. You know, most people are still voting on party lines. But actually, on the margins, you, know, you can make an argument. And I think we saw that last week, and we may see it again next week, that, you know, there was a lot of talk in the media about the, the so-called Cooper-Bowles amendment and all of this kind of thing, and Parliament seizing back control. Actually, when it came down to it, quite a lot of MPs listened to the arguments and they decided that that was a step too far and it would be seen by many voters as trying to stop Brexit and frustrate Brexit and go against the referendum result. And I will be making the argument next week that that is exactly what it is. Uh, not necessarily the doing of Yvette Cooper and Nick Bowles, but that's certainly, if you look at all the people jumping on the bandwagon, that is the intention. And I think there are a lot of MPs who will be persuaded that isn't a sensible step to take. But for me, if it means that ministers are, have to stand up at a dispatch block and make, make better arguments, and poor arguments mean you can't get your business through, I actually think that's a democratic improvement. I'll probably get panned for saying it. I was one of those ministers... I liked being at the dispatch box. I think one of the... Things that the public don't always understand. I think the single biggest check on executive power is that ministers know that ultimately, if they're making an argument for a piece of legislation or a decision, they have to stand at the dispatch box in the House of Commons and potentially have hundreds of very cross members of Parliament attacking them. And you have to be confident that you're prepared to argue your case hold a line and stand up for it. And that is ultimately what stops governments making foolish decisions. Or if they make foolish decisions, it's how those decisions get changed. And I think if we think back to, particularly when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, but other Prime Ministers, it was amazing how many decisions got changed on Wednesday mornings <laughs> before Prime Minister's questions, because ultimately the Prime Minister had to make a judgment about were they prepared to stand up, invest their personal authority in making an argument at the dispatch box or not. And ultimately, that is the democratic test. And that is why I actually quite welcome the fact that a parliament's doing a very good job at holding ministers to account. That is its job, and that's what it should continue doing. Thank you. Um, I want to come back to the, to the Cooper bill, given there seems to at least an outside chance <coughs> that we might see something similar tried again in the next few weeks. And the question there All about... Days days, whether it is ever right that legislation could be passed by the Commons without the government explicitly backing it. But I just want to pick up on this question at this point you make, which I think is very interesting about arguments having to be made. Um, a lot of the sort of battles I think we've seen in Parliament over Brexit have been to do with access to information um, and Parliament feeling that it didn't have access, say, to the sectoral analysis that David Davis had referred <coughs> to in front of the EXU committee. Um, and then uh, the opposition wanting access to the legal advice of the backstop and so on and so forth. And 
I, I totally agree with you that the, the quality of argument is really important, um, but Parliament needs to have the right information in order to have those arguments and have those debates. Do I'm interested in the panel's views on whether they think, um, and we've also seen, of course, Dominic Cummings refusing to come before the D DCMS committee. You know, does Parliament have the right powers to access information? This humble address process that you referred to, Nikki, is, is quite a sort of um, dramatic tool which has forced the government to re release legal advice, which I think is quite an alarming thing from the government's point of view. You know, are these powers and rights from Parliament's point of view defined, sufficiently defined? And do they mean that Parliament is able to have the debates on the proper basis? Or, or does something need to change? Let, let, me, let me jump on that one first. I, I think actually Parliament does have the powers because ultimately, in, in a, if you take a situation at the moment where the government doesn't have an automatic majority, the ultimate sanction from, for Parliament is if it doesn't think the government's made a good case, which will involve putting facts and judgments in the public domain, it's ultimately not going to support the government's decision and, and actually government will be forced to put information into the public domain to make the arguments. I think the slight difference on this subject is, of course, some of the information isn't really information. So if you go back to the sectoral analysis, which I think I'm right in saying didn't really turn out to entirely exist in the form that they were explained, I mean, the problem with a lot of this information, it, it's not fact at all, it's opinion. Um, and it's arguably informed opinion, but it's opinion and it's contestable. My view is I'm perfectly relaxed about it being in the public domain. Um, uh, I think the more you make an argument, you have to be prepared to put your facts out there. I think actually ministers could be much more trusting of both Parliament and the public about facts uh, and judgments and how they've reached their conclusions um, than sometimes they are, because I think actually the public is perfectly capable of, of judging these things. On, on the legal advice, I think I'm, I'm actually fairly relaxed about the legal advice on the treaty being put into the public domain for this reason, that Parliament was being asked to make the decision uh, normally on, on many of these questions, and I, I think back, for example, when I was immigration minister, um, and you have legal, specific legal cases where you're actually going to have to go to court, but making ministers put that legal advice in the public is a very bad idea because um, you, you will never then get good opinions and you'll get your actual legal cases um, taken apart in a way that isn't sensible. Uh, and actually the public will suffer because ministers will not be able to make sensible decisions. And ultimately, ministers make decisions, legal advice is advice, and it's always open to ministers to listen to the legal advice and make a different decision because it is just advice. Um, and ministers are perfectly able to say, I was given legal advice and here is the decision I have made. And I think that's, that's perfectly reasonable for ministers to not have to put that in the public. In this case, we were being asked to make a judgment on the treaty uh, and its effects, and so if it was perfectly reasonable to, for MPs to look at the attorney's advice, and actually I made my judgment about not supporting the withdrawal agreement based on my having read it, um, despite the fact I'm only an accountant and not a lawyer. Um, but interestingly, the day I was making my speech, the attorney's advice was published. It actually backed up what I had concluded in really quite stark terms, um, and I think it was helpful for the House to have that advice because we were being asked to make the decision. I think if ministers are making decisions, the advice should remain confidential, yeah. and then it's for the minister to explain how they've reached their decision, having taken into account the legal advice and other things. But I do think Parliament has the tools, because ultimately, if it isn't happy but it's got the information, it won't sanction the decision that the government's taken. 
So I want to make a point, sort of coming back on whether or not Parliament has the right tools, which slightly disagrees with what we said. I mean, I take the point about minority government, but I do think in one important respect Parliament didn't have the tools, and that was in relation to scrutinising the negotiations and then approving the negotiations. We ended up, as everyone knows, I was slightly obsessed by the meaningful vote in 2018, um, and we ended up spending a whole year talking about how we would make the decision on once the treaty was finalised. And that just happened too late and it was clear from the from the very beginning that there was a majority in the house to increase the commons's power over the treaty process and if you look at where we started out the, the arrangements were inadequate crag is inadequate for this sort of treaty the, theresa may made a commitment to a vote on a motion and so that that fitted in with the whole deal or no deal analysis but that may be right the whole deal no deal thing i mean it probably is going to turn out to be right but the thing was is that MPs wanted more of a say. They wanted to have a say on the future relationship. And so we ended up having a really long argument about how we gave them a say until it was too late for them actually to develop a process where they could actually have a say. And I think, you know, looking back, that's, that's a real sense of frustration because there was a majority for a consensus. And I, and I come back to the point Nicky made about trust, which I agree with. If you had agreed a process at the beginning, led by the government, which everybody could agree on, wasn't partisan, wasn't a stitch-up, wasn't Remainer, orientated, wasn't Brexiteer oriented, but was to give MPs a fair chance to have a decision on, for example, the future relationship separately from the withdrawal agreement, which we knew that there was limited scope. I think you could have had a better process. Nikki. Because <laughs> I think it relates both to opposition days, meaningful votes, etc. And there is this presumption, and it tends to dominate in debate, of, uh, you know, it's kind of our, our A-level politics of Commons good, always acting as the benign check on government, never any sort of politics going on in the background. So, you know, the rule of, I've been in opposition, the point of an op day is to cause the most pain possible to government, not to choose the topics you want to debate, you choose the topics where you can peel off, you know, the other side's MPs, so you get a defeat. It's, so it's not necessarily about holding to account. In the same way, the mobilisation of humble addresses, sometimes it's to pull documents that you know you want to use, sometimes it's to pull documents because you know it's going to be embarrassing. So we need to be, you know, we need to be, you know, we need to really go behind motives. So when you say about the meaningful vote, the difficulty here is, is yes, you can have a situation where you go, okay, I will give all, you know, when we do bills, we have a concession plan, we, because we have to think about two houses and a number of uh, amending stages. You can't just whack it all there at the boat, because they will build on it, and you have no majority. So if you come out with a particular process at the start, you can bet the bottom dollar that it's going to have bells and whistles on it by the time the bill emerges. <laughs> so I, I slightly challenge this idea that if you just come forward with something that looked perfectly sensible, that it would have remained perfectly sensible. I mean, take Dominic Greaves' amendment back in June, where he had it about the Parliament, direct, the Commons actually directing the government and taking over in terms of negotiations. Uh, now, that might have been a feint, he's admitted that himself, but I think we really need to get beyond this idea that um, every time a defeat is there, it's because of from principle rather than politics. The number one thing for the opposition, and I say from experience, is you need to you know, take down the government, and that's where it's just going to drive a lot of your, your political decisions. I'll just make one brief point yeah. come back. But, I mean, I, I mean, this does sound like something I heard Dominic said, say on, on the BBC, so I should be careful. But 
Isn't it ironic that ultimately the government ended up supporting an amendment which was effectively a negotiating direction, the Brady Amendment? I mean, in the end, <laughs> the government wanted to make a negotiation direction which showed the value of the process. Yeah, but you need to distinguish here, and, and I, I, because when we talk about the meaningful vote, the meaningful vote was about uh, when a deal is brought forward and then what happens. And then, so in this situation, what we were doing is, is defending that right for a government and executive to be able to go and negotiate. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the Brady Amendment, you know, you, we have this phrase of we are where we are, standing on the lifted, therefore you have to adapt to those particular uh, circumstances. Uh, in other situations, you would have, you have a different game playing out with a different process. Can I just... Nikki, I just want to yeah. follow up on this um, and say, so if you were still uh, in, your, mm. in your old job, and looking at how the process did play out in the end, mm. and you know Jack's thoughts about how it could have worked differently, how would you approach, assuming that we are going to leave, uh, mm. if not on the 29th of March, shortly thereafter, or mm. at some point, how would you advise government to approach the next negotiation in terms of the mandate for what it is going to try to achieve? So my role has never been about advising on the negotiations. But so I'm not interested in your so, view. Well, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it, it, the, the point is, you know, you have a whole team. There's 250 people in number 10. But they're it's going to have to get it through yes, Parliament Yes, again. that's the bit I can yeah. comment yeah. on. Yeah. So that's it's, it's no good me yeah. telling you how to negotiate no, with no, the no, EU. No, no, no. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, sorry, that wasn't yes. intended to be the question. So how, in terms uh, how, of how ultimately, Parliament is going to have to agree yes. a new future relationship treaty. Yeah. How should Parliament set up circumstances, you know, should they do something similar again and maintain sort of essentially a strategy of maintaining a high degree of ambiguity about exactly what the future... Well, I think that, that ground's already been given in the Prime Minister's statement um, before the last vote that we had, the, the non-meaningful vote, the, 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 post, the next steps vote, uh, where the Prime Minister set out of, uh, already an end of the statement that preceded it on um, how to involve Parliament more. So I think we've already started to see the start of the concessions in terms of the relationship. But what do you think that actually means? So I, the, what should it mean? The, the issue will probably be about you know a vote to prove the future relationship and those kind of things, and you'll probably see something in the in the web, I imagine, uh, relating to that. <laughs> it's all fairly predictable. The question is whether it will actually secure the outcome, mm. because I don't think right now that concessions on how you prove the future relationship are going to shift the dial in terms of the deal. What you're doing right now is actually a playoff between can Parliament stabilise long enough to create uh, a change in the political dynamic such that the EU engages in a different way. And so right now, that would be the, the focus. How do you manage that? Mick, do you want this to is, come this, in? this is clearly a challenge. I mean, you, you're putting mm. it to Nikki to answer from the point of view of government. Yeah. But this is clearly a challenge for Parliament Indeed. as well as for mm. government. Parliament yeah. needs to decide, the government needs to decide what its sort of negotiating position with Parliament is, I suppose, and Parliament needs to decide what it wants. Yeah. And I think that that's actually <laughs> very difficult. I mean, you know, it's a point that's been made over, you know, many years, including very um, articulately in various writings by Tony Wright, that Parliament is, is not a single actor. You know, Parliament doesn't have a collective point of view. And if ever there was a Parliament that didn't have a collective point of view, it's this one. Um, and it goes back to the point that I made about the, the importance of the breakdown of um, the, the breakdown of the party blocks um, regarding the issue. Um, that it's very difficult to see how a group of 650 people who are pointing in all sorts of different directions, and I think Nikki alluded to this, I mean, you've always got to be careful in these situations of 
people who are making sort of quasi-constitutional arguments on the basis of what they want the outcome in substantive policy terms to be. And I think that applies to parliamentary procedures that you might set up as well. You know, everybody's got their eye on a Brexit prize and they want to make a set of rules that will help them to get to that Brexit prize, which means that there's not actually very much sincere decision-making going on yep. some of the time. With respect to the, the point about information, I was just struck, and, and I think it relates to, to that point about parties, really. Um, that Nikki spoke about a breakdown of trust, and you were, speak, you, you were referring, I think, to a breakdown of trust between people, the public, and politicians. But in, in, no, in the Commons, in terms of the normal way of functioning. Oh, right, okay. So I think that the, the, the question of information is very much related to that the breakdown of trust between MPs and their leaders, um, which is one of the building blocks of. How, the, how politics functions, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the system that we have, that there has to be a delegation of decision-making up to ministers or shadow ministers who will come back and you'll have behind-the-scenes discussions with your backbenchers, but in the end, they will come back with something that backbenchers will take on trust rather than requiring absolutely everything to be out in the open. And if absolutely everything has to be out in the open, you do get to a point when actually politics will cease to, <laughs> politics will cease to function. Um, I think that what's going on at the moment, although I'm very much a defender of Parliament and I'm, I, you know, I'm fairly relaxed about the stuff about Standing Order 14 and the rest of it, I also do think that in some respects it's kind of a, 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 a beautiful example of why um, the standard process of Parliament, um, Parliament functioning on the basis of reliable party blocks is rather a good one. Um, it's quite a good advertisement for the system as it usually works, which is quite interesting for parliamentary reformers. Mark, can I just add, add a, a couple of points? I, I think, first of all, the, the point about a parliament of 650 MPs and various views, and how do you get to an outcome? Well, the way you get to the outcome is that the government has to provide leadership. That is the point of our process. The government has to, has to drive the agenda and set out where it wants to go, and then challenges... Parliament to see whether it has confidence in that approach, and then depending on how the numbers are, you do course correction. Let me just come back to the um, Brady Amendment um, and the, effectively the direction the Prime Minister has had to replace the backstop. I mean, in one in one sense, we didn't learn anything at all from Brady. Um, some of us who have had to make these calculations before were very clear um, that the withdrawal agreement as presented was never going to go through Parliament. I have to confess I didn't think it was going to be defeated by 230, um, but it was never going to go through Parliament because there were very significant numbers of Conservative MPs who were never going to support the backstop uh, because it breaches two of our very important manifesto commitments we made at an election. Um, so, so really all, all the meaningful vote did was crystallise that. Didn't, didn't, you didn't learn anything from it. I mean, the Prime Minister knew what the outcome was going to be in December, which is why she didn't have the vote. Um, and the Brady Amendment, I've always believed that if you could fix the backstop, you'll get sufficient numbers of Conservatives on board and the DUP, probably not all Conservatives, but you get to within spitting distance of a, of a majority. And then, as we've seen from the votes last week, there are about, there aren't loads of them, there are about 20 to 30 Labour MPs who come from constituencies which, where the Leave vote was very strong and where significant numbers of their voters want to leave the European Union, who will be prepared to get it over the line. And that will create a, a sustainable majority for getting through the legislation to enact the withdrawal agreement 
of, of my judgment would be about 15 to 20. A perfectly workable majority in normal terms, as long as you don't assume all majorities have to have three figures attached to them. That, it seems to me, was, is a perfectly sensible approach. Going back to the future relationship, there's a choice for the government. The government's basically got to decide. Does it want to uh, keep the Conservative Party broadly united with our DUP allies and approach the negotiations for the future relationship on that basis? That's choice one. The second choice is, does it wish to uh, split the Conservative Party uh, and try and do a deal with the Labour Party? Uh, and do it on that basis. Those are the two choices, and that is a decision that needs to be made. It has been avoided for the last two and a half years, but fundamentally that is the decision, and I'm afraid one of the frustrations of this process where we keep talking about a deal, and I think, Jack, you alluded to it, this is this, what we've got in front of Parliament. It's not a deal at all. It's a withdrawal agreement, and, and agreeing basically money, citizens' rights, buying us at very cost of 10 billion a year, a, a two-year hiatus, where we can then make a decision about the deal. And actually, for all the people listening to the debate, businesses and, and voters, anybody who thinks this is the end of the process, I'm afraid, is going to be sadly disappointed. The, se the second we've left the European Union, and we've, um, let's just assume the Prime Minister gets this withdrawal agreement and future political declaration through, we're just going to immediately pivot to the next date, which is a review point in mid-2020, um, and, and, and what the decision point is, and my, my judgment is, I'm slightly old-fashioned, I think the government should sit down, should thrash out what it thinks, collectively, the right answer is, and it should make an argument for it. Um, and my, my view is, if, if we'd done that in the summer of 2016, before we triggered Article 50, before we'd kicked off the process, it would have been very bumpy. You wouldn't have avoided any of the difficulties, and obviously I understand why the Prime Minister made the judgment she had. But the point is, doing it this way, it hasn't stopped people resigning from the government, it hasn't stopped division, it hasn't stopped argument, and I think for the public, a clear lead and a, and a view being set out and a case made and being presented to Parliament and presented to our EU negotiating partners, I personally think that would have been a better path to have followed, and I think that's the path that should be followed from now through to... Uh, negotiating that deal. I think that's the best prospect. It won't be smooth, it will be bumpy, and it will require the government to set, make an argument, and no doubt, listening to the response to the argument, it will course correct, but I think that's a better way, and more commensurate with our history, that the government leads, listens to responses, course corrects, but ultimately, I think the government has to lead. It can't expect Parliament to do so, because I think, as everyone said, you've got too many views, some you know, lots of different views, lots of different motivations, and ultimately the country needs a government that can lead and take Parliament with it. Much as I would continue to love to continue asking my own questions, I'm going to open up to the floor. Um, anyone who's next door who wishes to ask a question, please uh, just uh, come and pop your head through uh, in a time-honoured fashion, I'm afraid. Um, I'm going to take the questions in groups um, and then... Uh, try to get through a few groups of questions um, before uh, 10 o'clock. So, start with John. Guy, could you say who you are before you ask a question? Sorry, John Pete from The, from the Economist. Um, one word that hasn't been mentioned is the word speaker. Um, and I, I wonder, besides the, the rather... <laughs> shall not be there. <laughs> the rather irritating occupant of that post now. I mean, he seems to see his job unusually as being very confrontational towards the ruling party. Uh, do you think that's quite likely to be the pattern in the future, that speakers are likely to take, see their role as not being particularly amenable to the government, which used to be the past role? Um, has that changed for good? Mark? 
I too was going to ask about the speaker, Mark Darcy, from today in Parliament. Um, we have a speaker like no other. Uh, I was watching, uh, I happened to notice uh, Mark's expression as Meg was talking about the need for a House Business Committee a little while earlier. <laughs> uh, while Mark is too good a politician to actually wince, there was a certain freezing for a moment. Uh, but here we have a speaker who will grant emergency debates, who will call urgent questions, who will bend standing orders way beyond the actual meaning of the words therein. And uh, so we have a wild card in the process, uh, more than just confrontational, a wild card in the process to discuss. Uh, maybe we'll just take those two questions, seeing they're on the same theme before we move on. Who would like to jump in? Can I, um, yeah. So, so on, on the speaker question, um, I think there's a line. O on all the stuff around urgent questions and topicality and standing order 24 debates and all that kind of stuff, I will probably make myself very unpopular with my certainly my colleagues in government. Personally, I think all of that is fantastic. I, I was one of those slightly weird ministers who I liked urgent questions. My, my bit of parliamentary offices that do the batting them away used to go off and tell my private office that they'd had a huge triumph and they'd managed to get it not happening. And my private secretary always used to say, he'll be really disappointed. Because <laughs> um, I used to like them. I like parliament. I actually think that's, that's good. I like the whole parliamentary process. That side of the speaker I think is fantastic. I think the line that's very dangerous is the bit about literally just not following the rules in standing orders. And I think it's perfectly open to the House to change standing orders, but I do think if they're written down and they are the rules, they should be obeyed. Um, ultimately, the check on the speaker, of course, is uh, the majority in Parliament. And of course, the speaker can only push and can only do certain things if he knows that ultimately a majority in Parliament will either support him or at least not overturn him. It is completely up to Parliament. If at any moment Parliament collectively or the Commons decided that the Speaker had overstepped the mark, at any moment the Speaker can be removed by a majority in Parliament. You can put down a motion and you can remove him in exactly the way Michael Martin was removed. Um, the fact that that hasn't happened is exactly why the Speaker behaves the way the Speaker does, because he knows that a majority in Parliament is prepared to support what he is doing. Um, and that is the check. But my own sense is I think there's a line, and I said all the UQs and all the topicality stuff, that's all great, and I think that's fantastic. The bit where I think is not right is if you don't agree with standing orders, you should change them. You shouldn't just m interpret them in a completely different way that's not commensurate with any precedent or history or the views of the clerks. No. I, I think that what the Speaker has been trying to do in very, very difficult circumstances, as previously described, is to enable key voices and key issues to be raised in Parliament, and he's being imaginative in order to do so. So again, it's a, it's a result of those, partly it's the, that constellation of unique things that I referred to before. But I think that also in all of these kinds of questions, there are always questions about the role of personality versus the role of institutions and incentives. And I think that there is something unique about this speaker, uh, which is the process by which he was chosen and by which his successor, whenever that time comes, will be chosen. I mean, he was, he was elected uh, in the wake of the expenses crisis um, under a new process. Um, it was the first speaker election where the candidates actually issued manifestos and attended hustings. And therefore, he stood on a manifesto of giving more power to backbenchers, and it was a reforming manifesto. So whenever the next speakership election, and that gives him a kind of, you know, a mandate to, to live up to. Um, and basically, on the, on the last point, I completely agree with Mark, and I think that this will apply um, whenever the next speaker election 
comes, because it will be held under the same procedure, we will again go through that process, presumably of manifestos and hustings, and people will set out their stall, and then it will be for MPs to decide what kind of person they want and therefore what kind of a culture they want to inculcate. If they want to continue down the road that they're going down, they'll elect John Burkow Mark II. And if they think that this has all gone too far, they'll go back to some sort of small C conservative speaker. And in the end, that's a matter for MPs. Either of you want to come in on this? Yeah, I'll, I'll make two points. I think the, the first um, aspect in, in terms of uh, to John's question of, of will the, is this a pattern now? I think that you have, are seeing different styles emerge and people that you know, put themselves forward in the future. I would note the difference, though. It, it wasn't much commented on. Um, Eleanor Lang worked with the leader of the Commons to get some of the Cox proposals uh, debated and voted on a couple of weeks ago, working within the limits. Basically, her speech had stopped. It was a couple of minutes shy of 10 p.m., and she put the question completely, yeah, completely <laughs> within the rules. So she managed to achieve that without breaking any precedent and showed strength and uh, giving room for enabling key voices to be heard, voices that were actually being shoved aside. <laughs> voices that have actually been, and you know, I have no truck with this statement. That, and I'll be very fine, I think it mirrors the Institute for Governments. The view that we should support a speaker because of a policy issue and that trumps the treatment of clerks in the House uh, and the treatment of staff and that for some reason we should waive our moral standards uh, because you know, we believe a particular policy issue should go through. That, that's, just, that's just not acceptable. And so when we say enable key voices, um, I think you know, if we take the <coughs> grieve example of letting that amendment through, the way it was done did not open the field for further amendments. It was done overnight in a particular one-to-one. -one. So if, I, if it was generally about enabling more amendments to come forward, then actually there should have been a pause. Maybe the speaker would have got word out in the morning. Uh, that, you know, there would be manuscript amendments. But I don't actually think this is about judiciously allowing all key voices to be heard. There is bias there. On the other hand, the government arguably was the way it chose to restart the debate with a supplementary business motion which couldn't be amended <laughs> rather than starting afresh was also an attempt to close down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to put, yes. put myself in John Burke's no, position and see. Yes. Um, and I can, I can yeah. understand that, but I would also then note there were two, you know, two no, things where, to, the, where the Commons gave agreement. The First, they, they approved that business motion, so they said we will be bound by that. And secondly, and it goes back to the meaningful vote, Dominic Grieve said, both I think in the chamber, but certainly in private on negotiations. We should sort this out now outside of the heat of battle. It's very important that because when we get into the heat of battle, people will try and twist things and, and change things out. And what do we find? That the process that he agreed and everyone signed up to, actually it turns out they're not happy with that. They weren't happy with the concessions that they got and they have pushed further. So again, it's about really questioning the motives that we're seeing playing out. And I absolutely agree with that on the t in terms of you know what we have seen in Brexit, lots of these things playing out in the heat of battle is not a good way for the House to be deciding yeah. how it wants to conduct yeah. itself. And it may be that it's only in the heat of these discussions that you discover the things that mm. people think don't work. But there's a big argument that you know, Parliament is, is, is bad at uh, just at making decisions about how it should run itself in peacetime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apart from honourable examples like the Right Committee. Um, Jack. Um, in relation to the Speaker, as a constitutional lawyer, I'm quite comfortable with the idea that if you're at the top of the tree, like the Supreme Court, then you are entitled to use whatever interpretive means you may find uh, to justify your decisions. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it works. I mean, you, if you have that, if the, if the 
If the Constitution effectively gives you a carte blanche to interpret the rules as you see fit, which, as I understand, that's the position of the Speaker, he is ultimately in charge of procedure, um, then I think he, you know, that's, that, those are the rules of the battle. If you want to change those rules, then that's fine. But I think that, that, that would be my position in relation to that. And I think that when I look about whether or not there's a kind of conspiracy, I would um, often thought to, is it 2013 with the Queen's speech where uh, John Burko allowed a third um, amendment, uh, breaking with procedure to allow this kind of, you know, the crucial Brexiteer amendment to call for a referendum. So he, he has done it in both directions. And that sort of, as, as Meg was saying, is fitting with the type of character that the Commons chose to elect. There is another link here, I think, to something that I said before about how in the interpretation of the, of the rules and so on, um, everything is seen through a Brexit lens. And there was a point a few months ago when I was actually getting concerned that we might be facing a speaker election, uh, because I think a speaker election in this environment could be a very damaging thing, because mm. it would become a Brexit election. Um, and that absolutely isn't what we ought to be doing in terms of how we are choosing the Speaker of the House of Commons. So somehow we need to get through this period, I think, back to peacetime, was it that you said? <laughs> uh, although, as Mark says, uh, we've got a lot more of this to come. We're only at the beginning, not the end. So. Correct. <laughs> Shall I take another round of questions? Uh, I'm Helen Goodman and I'm the Member of Parliament for Bishop Auckland. I agree very much with what Mark said about agreeing, Parliament agreeing the negotiating objectives at the outset rather than the end. Uh, and I wonder how much you've thought about the fact that we're not very good at taking complex decisions because all we have is this on-off switch, yes, no. And I feel that we're very much in danger of ending up exactly as we did on House of Lords reform. The first time, nothing passed. The second time, everything passed. And so now, with House of Lords reform, it really doesn't matter to who's. But <laughs> with, with Brexit, it really, really matters. And so our processes and our voting system which was designed by Thomas Cromwell, has not really come to grips with the nuances, the fact that some people are going to get their first choice, a lot of people are going to get their second choice, and we need to be thinking about how to institutionalise that uh, rather than just sort of plodding on with, with, where, with where we are now, which is patently failing us. So, yeah, very interesting. Do we need to find ways for procedure to deal with sort of non-binary decision-making? I think there's a question over there, Martin. Um, I'm Martin Kettle from The Guardian. Um, I just wondered if the panel had any reflections on whether this whole process has changed the notion of confidence uh, in a lasting way, uh, or whether it's again, just uh, you know, a sui generis situation in which uh, confidence is, exists one week and not the next week, um, or is this going to have any lasting um, effect? Okay, should we take those two? Who would like to go? On the confidence point, one of the most frustrating things in, in the time I was in number 10 was that you'd have both sides, so let's just take two little rebel groups on, on the different sides, each saying, uh, Prime Minister, you should make this a confidence vote. <laughs> and the time and time again, you can't. Because what you have is with the fixed-term Parliament Act, MPs could on one vote 
vote against the government. And then when you, and you say, well, therefore we'll bring forward a competence motion. There was no linkage. So you could equally turn around the next day and vote, the, as we've seen, uh, vote, vote confidence in the government. And that's what exactly we saw, see, saw a couple of, of weeks ago. And so in many ways, I think the Fixed-Term Parliament Act has is, 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 is caused a huge issue, actually, um, in terms of how the Commons and the government function. Uh, and uh, we, we, we probably need to look at that a little bit more because I think what we see this dancing on the head of a pin about uh, standing order for, uh, for the ch taking executive power, it's all basically because of the threat of a Corbyn government is viewed as so bad by some Conservative MPs. They're therefore not willing to use the sanction of voting that they don't have confidence in the government. But what they would quite like to do is keep the government there, say we have confidence in you just sort of sitting here, but we'd quite like to do the functions down here. Um, and and so, you, so you've got these sort of tensions playing out. Um, I, I personally find that I think the fixed-term parliament is not doing quite what it was originally envisaged to do. <laughs> Meg, uh, sorry, no. Sorry, I, I only want to pick that one up. As, as the minister who wrote it and took it through <laughs> parliament, um, I, I think it's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. And, and I, I, put, I have a slightly different view. I mean, I do think that actually is a big change because I think what would have happened previously, and I'm pleased that the Prime Minister wasn't able to do this as someone who voted against the withdrawal agreement. What she would have done previously, before the Fitzgerald Parliament, she would have said, this is a matter of confidence. And if you don't vote for my deal, uh, I'm going to call a general election. And that may have worked. Personally, I think the, ability, the Prime Minister is being able to say something's not very good, but you're going to vote for it or else. I'm going to sort of blow up the, the operation. Is not a very good way of making policy. And I think the fact that Prime Ministers can't do that anymore... Um, again, I'll probably make myself unpopular. I think that's a good thing because it means you've got to win arguments and, and get policies through based on the quality of the argument and the decisions you're taking, not just saying, I'm right, I don't care if you don't agree with me, but you've got to do what I say. But it, it does change, and as Nick has said, I, I've, I've read lots of newspaper stories um, where people keep talking about confidence votes and making things a confidence vote, and they simply haven't understood... <laughs> The, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which was passed quite a long time ago, has fundamentally changed how government needs to think about how it operates. Um, and I don't think that has been internalised yet. Um, coming back to Helen's point, I'll just put aside the fact that I'm slightly worried that Helen and I are having a bit of cross-party consensus here. She said she agreed with me. Two issues, I think. On complex decision-taking... Um, I, I agree with you. There's, there's probably a lot of scope there, and actually more select committee work and more detailed discussion in Parliament away from the chamber is probably a good thing. I think the thing that's dif different in this case, though, which makes it very complicated for Parliament, is this is where the government has to do the leadership, is this isn't about the government making a decision. This is about the government negotiating an outcome. Now, we can have negotiating objectives, but fundamentally, in the next stage, by the way, it's going to be even more difficult, because every single one of those 27 countries has a veto. So the problem is, Parliament can agree whatever it likes at the beginning, but it ultimately has got to trust the government to go away and do a negotiation, because as we've discovered, the government has got to try and get the best deal for the country, and that will mean trade-offs and compromises, but ultimately those decisions have got to be made by the person sitting in the room, which ultimately, in the final analysis, will be the Prime Minister, whoever the Prime Minister is. We'll be sat in a room with other Prime Ministers having to trade these things off. If you go back to what John Major did at Maastricht, you know, it was all done at that level, late at night, not necessarily a good idea, but that's how it works, making the decision. And Parliament can't then unpick it afterwards. 
because you've got to go back and get 27 people to agree with it. So I think that's where I think part of the government does need to set out what it wants to achieve and make some decisions. It needs to get Parliament comfortable with that, but Parliament's also got to, in these circumstances, got to be comfortable with the fact that what comes back won't be exactly what it wants. And the judgment it has to make is, does it think the government's made the best fist of it and is therefore prepared to vote through the deal? So I think that's why this is particularly complicated, because it's about a negotiation, not a piece of decision-making that government's making and it can then carry the decision-making through. And as you say, you know, this is, this is going to happen now, from now on. There's the next stage is going to be even more complicated than the first also, stage. The next stage, also, you know, future treaties, and not just trade treaties, yeah. you know, this is something Parliament's going to have to get used to. Yeah. Yeah, well, great points and sort of connected because ultimately, do we have parliamentary procedures designed to build a consensus to break a deadlock? And that's what we're seeing and it's not looking good um, at this precise moment in time. I think we can all think, especially sort of from an academic or a lawyer's perspective of, of ways that you can make the system work to break the deadlock. And we thought we did that a bit with the meaningful vote, but the problem is, will MPs play ball? Will they, will they use the procedures that are designed? And I, think, I feel like the meaningful vote will go down as a bit of a missed opportunity in that respect, because ultimately the government did give MPs a chance to say, here, have your amendments first, say what you want, and the best they could come up with was we don't want no deal, which, I mean, is, is un frankly unhelpful. Um, you know, you know it, 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 so I think that I'm slightly sympathetic to the government there because, you know, they did say, look, here, here's your meaningful vote, here's your opportunity to put forward changes potentially to the future relationship on, you know, we, we'd, we'd want free movement or we want a customs union, but they didn't, they couldn't do it. So I think, you know, we need, you know, if you're going to create this sort of process, you really need to embed it early enough. I think that's what Mark made, made clear for the future relationship. We have to agree a process at the outset. We're all comfortable with it. It's not a conspiracy. And then, you know, that, then it might have a chance of building a consensus. Sounds like a nice idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, the, on, on the confidence point, um, I would just throw in that Theresa May wasn't quite as powerless as, as, as you suggest. You know, she's not completely boxed in by the, by the Fixed Term Parliament Act. There is, there is nothing in law that prevents a Prime Minister threatening to resign that prevents an entire government threatening to resign. You know, she could have turned up in the, you know, Tony Blair hinted at his resignation in order to pull people into line over the Iraq war vote back in 2003. You know, she, she could have made it clear that she and her entire cabinet would go if this didn't go through, and presumably she knew that. I think presumably she could have done the first one of those. I don't think she could have done the second Well, with the agreement <laughs> of the cabinet. The cabinet could have. Uh, yes. The cabinet could have. Yes, but I think it's fair. No, but I'm not but making a facetious point. She could have absolutely done the first one and said, if you don't vote for my deal, I will resign as, as leader of the party and prime minister. I don't think, I think it's fairly clear she could not have delivered the second promise. Well, she could not have delivered, but in theory, the cabinet could have made that clear. Uh, and yes, I mean, maybe well, several reasons why you wouldn't do that, um, which maybe we don't need to go into all of them. One of them is, one of them, um, uh, is division, but the other one is presumably, even if anybody thought of doing it, they realised that that might not be enough to save them, uh, given the, the level of, um, the, the level of uh, rebellion going on. Um, on Helen's point, I think this is a really interesting and important um, point regarding voting systems. Um, and you know, I think it's really valid, and I think it's something that we do need to look at, but it's also a very, very complex question. Um, if you're going to look at introducing new ways for MPs to vote on things, there are various principles that need to apply in the <coughs> parliamentary context that wouldn't apply everywhere. One of the most obvious being transparency, which is expected. Um, a lot of the voting systems that you would need to move towards in order to allow 
votes in multi-option situations would require ballot papers, uh, not division lobbies, and the ballot papers then presumably something would have to be published, and it would need to be published in a form that mere mortals could understand what had happened. But also, I think Jack uh, alluded to this, one of the difficulties in this situation, and I mentioned it already before, um, is that we're not in a situation where MPs are necessarily voting sincerely, they are voting strategically. Um, you know, people are not in the mood for compromise until they are forced to compromise. And the kinds of voting systems that you com can come up with, which in effect um, make strategic voting, um, insincere voting, not worthwhile pursuing, are so obscure um, that they would be viewed with suspicion if introduced, as, as people have said, in the heat of battle. So I think that these are issues which are well worth considering, and I think that bodies like the Procedure Committee ought to be thinking about it, but it's quite difficult to see how you introduce a potentially not very transparent and extremely new procedure in the middle of such a heated discussion as the one that we're having Correct. now. Well, happily, as Helen is on the Procedure Committee, perhaps that's, that's something that they might be going to pursue. I'm, I'm sorry to say go that... Go on one more. No, go on, do one more. Back. Is that OK? I mean, you, you're our constraint, so if we can I do was, one I more... Was, I'm the one that's got to get a tray, but I, I've got to... We, okay. can do, we can do another round of get last few OK, one more round. So, Matthew? Uh, I'm Matthew Hamlin. I'm uh, head of the overseas office in the House of Commons, so I spend my life explaining all this to bemused overseas visitors. Um, <laughs> the, the, the title of the seminar is about Parliament. We haven't mentioned the House of Lords at all. I just wondered, you know, just for the reputational... You know, benefit to the IFG if anyone wants to say anything about the House of Lords. <laughs> One more question then. Uh, Elliot, could you give it to the gentleman? Um, I'm Robert Morland. I'm a former member of the European Parliament. I live just outside Mark's constituency and have canvassed for him, but it doesn't mean I agree with him. My question is. <laughs> <laughs> you can carry on canvassing. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm also one of those who really wonder what I'm doing um, in the same party as the awful ERG members. But my question is quite simply this. Isn't part of the problem here, which we've never had to face before, it is that we've had a referendum with a decision that is not consistent with the majority view of Parliament. Indeed, I think quite a substantial majority in Parliament. And we've had a situation of a bit of the dog, of the tail wagging the, the dog. And uh, that is what we have to face up to, and which we didn't really calculate. And th therefore, all that we're talking about is not really a surprise. Okay, two very good uh, closing questions, I think. Meg, would you like to, I mean, I think I uh, <laughs> heard you bridle when Helen said that, uh, um, House of Lords reform, which is not as important, arguably, you know, how we set up our, our Parliament is, is the fundamental question, and this is just a little local difficulty, how we relate to the EU. Um, I, I didn't entirely get um, Matthew's, Matthew's question. question, so just the House of Lords, does it matter, was it? Or? <laughs> if, if the question is, has Brexit changed Parliament, has it made the slightest difference in the House of Lords, where, picking up Mark's earlier point, that in the House of Commons, we're battling without having a majority. You have to make your case with the backdrop, which sounds like the House, House, House of Lords for yes. decades. So, mm. maybe the House of Lords is this is normal for them. Yeah. Whether literally, I just thought we ought to say something in about whether <laughs> Brexit has changed the House of Lords. Well, when, when, um, when, when Mark was talking about how healthy it is, the, the, the need to make your case, I did think, oh, well, that, yeah, what you're describing is the way it, 
generally is in the House of Lords, and that's one of the things which is good about the House of Lords, that you can't rely on your majority to get anything through. You've actually got to persuade people, and that's a rather healthy thing, as you referred to with respect to the Commons. I don't think, um, I don't think this has changed the House of Lords very much at all as yet. Jack might want to say something about the impact that they had on the, uh, on the Withdrawal Act, which was obviously quite substantial. Um, but I think the House of Lords has been basically getting on with its job and probably rather enjoying the fact that the heat is off it. Um, it's interesting, I think, I, you know, as some people in the audience will know, I've written a book and various other things about the House of Lords. Um, and I cite in that book, I think, um, some interviews that I did years ago with members of the 74 government, uh, where obviously at that time Labour was in power, massively outnumbered in the House of Lords. Um, and I was interested in, Nikki referred to uh, the um, parliamentary handling strategies that exist now, which were introduced first for the House of Lords under Labour, uh, when Dennis Carter was the chief whip in the House of Lords, um, to force ministers to think through what kinds of problems they were going to face in the Lords and how they were going to deal with them. And so I asked members of the 74 government, did you not have something like this because the whole of the House of Lords was ranged against you? Uh, and of course, they were in a numbers problem back then. Uh, and they said, no, uh, we worried about getting through, through the House of Commons. And if the House of Commons sorted itself out, if the House of Commons could agree, the House of Lords would sort itself out. And I think we are essentially back in that situation where the battleground is the House of Commons. The House of Lords knows that it shouldn't, on principle, be standing in the way of the decisions of the elected House. And when those decisions are so tightly negotiated, if something can get through, the House of Lords will largely accept it. I think there are some, some exceptions. I mean, we wrote a report, again, as some people will know, on the, the mechanics of a potential further referendum on Brexit. And you have to think if there was going to be a referendum, and indeed if there's going to be, you know, the withdrawal agreement bill goes through the Commons, it then has to go through the Lords. Um, I think where the House of Lords would bridle, and it might apply more to the referendum context than to the withdrawal agreement, is if the House of Commons tried to do something patently crazy in order to cobble together an awkward majority just to get something through. Uh, if it was something that was, you know, thinking in terms of if you were legislating for a referendum and you put together some sort of crazy referendum question or said there should be no oversight of the question by the Electoral Commission or the timetable should be something crazy, the House of Lords would then step up. But I think basically their role is to allow the House of Commons to make these difficult decisions. So I think to just actually bridge between the two questions um, from Matthew and Robert, I think you have the issue of has the Lords changed a lot? Probably not because it is predominantly a Remain chamber with a majority on Remain that is well into the 100 mark. Uh, so it, 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 where you have this tension that's emerged in the Commons is because of this very tight balance between on the numbers, whereas actually you don't need to have those same tensions playing out in the Lords when you've got those, those numbers in, in that place. I think what you have seen, and potentially I think if you had a referendum bill or something like that where you have the tension um, there's always been sort of this rule of thumb that the Lords will operate a self-denying ordinance, that it won't do things that potentially risk the reform of the Lords or the abolition of the House. And I think that that's not actually something that applies to particular cohorts anymore in the Lords, which can then lead to pressure, for example, on the Lords' opposition, um, who the usual channels are working really quite well there, where that then means that the behaviours that they would normally have start to get slightly bent out of shape as well. So there's tensions that could emerge. At the moment, it's holding together, um, and people are more moderating that, that themselves. Um, 
on the Lords, I'd say the only the major positive thing has been seeing that the Commons has actually taken up some of the uh, the Lords' obsession with constitutional matters, and so it was great to see <laughs> Oliver Letwin talking about the Wensbury principle and all things. <laughs> and then, uh, so that was good. But I, I just wanted to add one other point because I promised uh, Jill uh, on Twitter that I'd make a point about an innovation that could get us through. The mess. And the only innovation I can think of which doesn't involve dreaming up new procedures would be just to set up, have two separate meaningful votes, one on the withdrawal agreement and one on the political declaration. I think if you did that, you might force parties to actually look at the different, you know, where the, where the changes could be. I think that could be helpful. <laughs> Mark, um, I, I think I agree with Nikki that they're linked, actually. I think, I think on this, the Lords really isn't a, a player because of the referendum. Because actually, I think the Lords knows if it tried to frustrate Brexit, that would be the issue because it was a referendum where actually there would be a public mood to do something about them. Uh, and that's why I don't think they'll go near it, actually. Um, and, and also because it's a treaty that you're talking about, you know, there isn't any scope to change it. So, you know, it's not like a normal piece of legislation where you can, where you can amend it. Um, I, think, I think Robert's put his finger on the problem that, that why this is challenging is that on all previous referendums um, the public basically did what the people having the referendum wanted them to do and this is the first time that that hasn't been the case now it's a challenge I was a, you know I, I, I voted remain I was in David Cameron's cabinet and backed the, the government's decision then to to support remaining in the European Union I seem to have found it easier than some of my colleagues to cope with the fact that the public made a choice. Now, I'm a Democrat. I am very comfortable with the choice the public's made. I see my job as following the path the public have chosen, which is to leave the European Union, accept what comes with that. It's a binary decision. You do actually have to leave and, and to quote the phrase, take back control and, and not be as closely aligned. I think that, that follows. And I'm very comfortable with that. Part of the challenge is that quite a lot of people who are on the Remain side of the argument haven't been quite as comfortable with the consequences of the public not agreeing with them. And that is basically the challenge here. And I think when we came back to the numbers question, there are in the Labour Party, the Labour membership is very Remain-y, um, but lot, there are a number of Labour MPs who reflect parts of the country where their constituents are very voted leave. And there's about 20 or 30 of them that feel that pull stronger than their own opinions or the opinions of perhaps their party members. And that, I think, is how you assemble a coalition to deliver the referendum result in a way that the public, I think, is, will be in the right spirit. But that is, the, that is, I think, you've put your finger on the tension, which is there was a Remain majority of MPs in Parliament. The public had a different view and not every MP thought through the consequences of voting for a referendum. The vast majority of MPs supported the referendum. The vast majority of MPs voted for Article 50. So, you know, when they all say, I don't want a no-deal Brexit, well, I hate to break it to them. <laughs> two-thirds of MPs in the current Parliament voted for a, an unconditional two-year process which ended with leaving with no deal if you hadn't reached one. So they can all whinge about it now, but it demonstrates that people need to think about what they're voting for and be comfortable with following through the consequences. And what we're seeing now is that people didn't think through what they were voting for. 
Uh, they didn't think through the possible consequences, and they don't like what, what well, they choices really, they made. They, they weren't really offered the detail, were they? I mean, well, no, one, of the they, they were. one of the difficulties is article, the nature, no, no. Of, the nature of the question article and that the, the government the, did not specify well, what leave would mean article, or what the various no, versions no, of leave Article 50 were. is very clear. Article 50, the bill we took through had one substantive clause. Article 50 is a very short thing. It's very clear. There's a two-year process. At the end of it, you leave. And it's not conditional in any way. So everybody that voted to trigger Article 50, so this is where I give Ken Clark some slack, because he didn't, <laughs> everyone who voted for it was voting to leave the European Union two years later, whether or not we had a deal. That's what they voted for. And one of the concerns with argument against the, the Cooper bill, why you shouldn't ram through pieces of legislation in one day, we took seven weeks to do the Article 50 bill, why you don't ram through pieces of legislation in one day is because you need people to think about what it is they're voting for and what the consequences are. And that's why I think I will be opposing a Cooper bill next week if, if that's what comes back to the House. Because MPs have to look at what they're voting for and follow through the consequences. And that is ultimately... And, and be prepared to defend that to their constituents at the next election. But the fundamental tension, isn't it, is that the people voted for Brexit and it's been left to Parliament to work out what Brexit Correct. means. Correct. But it does mean... To quote a phrase, Brexit, not not Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, one final very quick word, and then I must wrap up. I have to just rebut on this idea of the innovation on having a separate vote in the withdrawal agreement and the future framework. The problem is you can't separate the two. The withdrawal agreement was meant to be about getting out, but it's got the backstop, which relates to the future in it. And therefore, because the backstop, uh, basically, the future relationship must meet the objectives of the Northern Ireland Protocol as set out in the withdrawal agreement, you therefore cannot separate the two because it constrains them. So separating them is not possible. L lovely, if we had been back two years ago and it was possible and we were having two distinct things, yes, if the backstop wasn't in there, you could have those two distinct votes. You just can't do it with the backstop being in the withdrawal agreement. And on that note, um, I think we could go on for another couple of hours, but we <laughs> unfortunately can't. Thank you. Could I ask you to thank our panelists? <laughs>